0: Our text this morning, as we hear from the living God and his word, is Colossians chapter 3, verses 1 to 17. This is the third of what I expect to be a total of five sermons that constitute a short series I've been calling Race and the Gospel. If you're just joining us at Christ the King this morning, we're taking a few weeks out of our ongoing study of Hebrews in response to the events of recent weeks that have brought the issues of race and racism to the attention of us all. I've tried to be clear that my work in these weeks is not intended to provide a comprehensive treatment of these issues, but instead has a particular focus. I've tried to select texts that allow us to reflect on the nature of the gospel itself as the scriptures present it, and to ask from the perspective of that gospel what implications there are when it comes to race. Two weeks ago when we began this series, we were in Luke's gospel in the fourth chapter. There we saw that at the beginning of Jesus' public ministry, His was a message of good news, of liberty, of deliverance for everyone. That salvation through Jesus as the Messiah would not be limited to one ethnic group. It would be for any and all on the basis of faith. Just as in the earlier history of Israel, God had gone outside her ethnic boundaries to meet the needs of the widow of Zarephath, And to heal Naaman the Syrian, so it would be, as Jesus fulfilled the promises of Isaiah 61. And just as that widow and Naaman had turned to the Lord, so too could all people turn to Jesus and trust in his declaration of the kingdom of God and receive its benefits. That wasn't a popular message, as you'll recall. Those in the synagogue that day were filled with wrath, Luke said. For his vision of the kingdom, they wanted Jesus dead. So then last week, we turned to consider the actual death of Jesus on the cross and how it was that his death accomplished the vision of the kingdom he had so clearly articulated. We considered Ephesians chapter 2 verses 11 to 22 together, we saw there how Paul says, Jesus himself is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility. Jew and Gentile alike have both been reconciled to God through the cross, the apostle makes clear, and the result Or the consequence of that fact was our main focus last week, that it was thereby, by the blood of Christ, that God's Son was killing the hostility that existed between them. Jesus Christ died to reconcile alien people groups to each other in one body. So then, you are no longer strangers and aliens, Paul wrote, in verse 19 of Ephesians 2, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. Such was Paul's conclusion. But perhaps after last Sunday, you were left asking, yes, Paul, but how? How is it that the death of Jesus on the cross does this reconciling work? How exactly does it kill the hostility? What's changed that makes that the great application of the gospel for us? And considering these questions from the perspective of 2,000 years after Paul wrote those New Testament letters, maybe we also would want to ask how, if this is all true, how can it be that that's not always what has happened. What about the times when the hostility wasn't killed? When the church itself was found in the center of racial hostility, not as the solution to the problem, but as part of the problem. How is it that the church has gotten this wrong at various points through history? and continues in some places to get it wrong today. It may strike you as somewhat simplistic, but I think the place we can go to begin to grapple with these questions, not only how does the cross achieve this killing of the hostility, but how is it that this seems not to have always been the case, in the history of the church. To grapple with such questions, I think we can turn to our text this morning, Colossians 3, verses 1 to 17. Because in these 17 verses, Paul moves his readers from the theological foundation of their identity in Christ to the application of the gospel in their lives and in the life of the church. And I recognize that Historical questions surrounding issues of racial hostility in any era, including our own, and in any place, are complex ones and in some ways unique to those times and circumstances. I also recognize that racial sins of one generation very much have carryover effects into future generations. But I do not think that such historical complexity or circumstantial complexity makes it simplistic for us to argue that addressing questions of racism as Christians can and must begin with the way the gospel enables us to overcome such sin. When we grasp the power of the gospel in our lives, the effect that gospel can have is incalculable. Our lives must change, yes. But as they do, our concern for the lives of others will change with it. Our priorities and the energies we spend on those priorities will realign with the priorities of the gospel. Or, if they don't, we must ask deeper questions about the nature of Of our conversion. It is the burden of this sermon series to make clear that concerning race, the gospel itself provides the starting point for Christians to work towards the purposes of God within the church and within the world. Which is why then we're looking at Colossians 3 this morning. Because according to Paul, The purposes of God concerning race and racial reconciliation are to be found in the very center of how the gospel is to be at work and manifest itself in our lives. The elimination of hostility on the basis of race, ethnicity, or social status is not a secondary gospel issue. It is found at the very heart of what the gospel brings about. And so our focus this morning is to ask, how is it that this reconciliation happens? If you have your Bibles and are there, as I hope you are or will be in Colossians chapter 3, let me begin once again this week with some basic structural observations. I'm not attempting an exhaustive exposition of the passage, but I want us to see the flow of Paul's thinking here because I want us very much to grasp How and why at the very heart of the implications of the gospel for our lives in Colossians 3 comes one of the most profound statements in all of the scriptures on the subject of race and social divisions. We'll get there. But for now, track with me as we work our way through Paul's flow of thought Colossians 3, verses 1 to 17, divides into three sections, I think. Verses 1 through 4 are the first and really sort of the introductory section. You see how it begins there with a reminder of the foundation Paul has already established with the Colossian readers. So verse 1 says, If then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Now, depending on the way you read it in English, that word if at the beginning of verse 1 may make it sound as though Paul isn't sure whether or not the Colossians have been raised with Christ. But that's not the sense of it. The apostle here is using the same language as he did back in chapter 2, verse 12 of Colossians, where it's quite clear what Paul thinks the Colossians were raised with Christ. Beginning in verse 11 of chapter 2, Paul says, In him also you were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands. Verse 12, Having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God. Far from questioning the fact of their co-resurrection with Christ, Paul reminds them of it in verse 1 of chapter 3. And since the Colossians have been raised with Christ, Paul reminds them of something else in verse 3 of chapter 3. Namely, that they have also died with Christ. Of course, death and resurrection go together. Beginning in verse 2, Paul says, Set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on earth, for you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. Now, there's a powerful definition there of what it means to be a Christian. If you are a Christian, you have died. But not just died, out of that death has come new resurrection life. All of it is because of Jesus. But what's Paul talking about here? In what way is it true to say that as a Christian you have died? What exactly has died in you? And the answer is that what's died, if you're a Christian, is the you that was held captive to sin. What's died are the convictions and the impulses and the drives and the affections and the passions that governed your lives as unbelievers. The priorities we once had and the energies we once spent on those priorities, that's all been put to death and new things have replaced them. Paul says that's what you have to set your mind on now in Colossians chapter 3. Now, on the subject of dying as Christians, listen to how Paul puts it elsewhere in Romans chapter 6, beginning there in verse 1. What shall we say then, Paul writes? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. How can we who died to sin still live in it? You hear that. That's the sense of the death we're talking about, dying to sin. Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death, in order that, just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. Verse 5, Romans 6 For if we have been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. And then here's the summary in verse 7 of Romans 6. For one who has died has been set free from sin. One who has died has been set free from sin, Paul writes in Romans 6, verse 7. So then, is it any surprise that after Paul has reminded the Colossians in our passage of this central truth about themselves, that they've died and that they've been raised with Christ, Is it any surprise that the immediate turn into the second section that begins in verse 5 of our text is to the commandment to put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you? In other words, at the cross, Christ died for your sin, but not only to take the penalty for it, which is true, but also to thereby kill the power of that sin in your very life. We read Galatians chapter 6, verse 14 last week, but it applies here again. Paul says there, But far be it from me to boast, except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, by which the world has been crucified to me, and I to the world. What the world meant to Paul before meeting Christ died on that day. Because the Paul that loved the world more than Christ died on that day. And so Paul urges the Colossians to kill it. Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, he writes. Not because the Colossians or not because we would have been able or capable of doing so on our own, apart from the work of the Spirit of God in our lives. No, Paul commands them to do this because Paul knows they can do it. Now that they have died and been raised with Christ. Our lives of faith now are what the gospel has wrought. The empowerment to do as Paul commands is the reality of the new creation God has made us to be. What it means to be a Christian is to live in the reality of the death and resurrection that has taken place in our lives by the work of the cross and the Spirit. What does that look like? section two of our passage begins in verse five and it runs to verse 11 and if you look just quickly at it notice how verses five to ten are almost entirely a list of commandments from paul to put to death to put away to put off behavior that's inconsistent with the reality of new resurrection life look at it just briefly it starts there in verse five put to death therefore What is earthly in you? Sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. On account of these, the wrath of God is coming. In other words, you can't be found to be doing such things. Such things as these cannot characterize your life now, or that wrath will be directed at you. Verse 7, In these you too once walked when you were living in them, verse 8, but now you must put them all away. Anger, wrath, malice, slander, and obscene talk from your mouth. And then in verses 9 and 10, it's as if Paul then picks one example to highlight how all of this works, and he chooses lying. Do not lie to one another, he writes in verse 9 seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. Now, in the logic of the passage, I hope you can see here how putting off the old self with its practices is in parallel with what it means to die in verse 3. It is a a sort of a classic Pauline shifting of imagery midstream. But the point isn't a different point. A death has happened. The old self has died. The self that, in this case, needed to lie, that depended on lying. That old self has died. It has been put off. And in its place, a new creation has come into being. And this new creation loves the truth. A new self has been put on which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. Note that, its creator. God made this new self, didn't he? Just as putting off the old self was in parallel to dying with Christ, putting on the new self is parallel with being raised with Christ. And so just as Christ was raised by God, our new self that comes about when we're raised with Christ owes its existence to God. Elsewhere in the scriptures, this new creation reality is called being born again. John chapter 3, verse 3, Jesus says, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. 1 Peter 1 verse 3, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. You see, it's the supernatural work of God in our lives that brings about what Paul's describing here. We have resurrection life because of God. We have a new self created by God. And so in section two of our passage, we're told to put to death, to put away, to put off those things that are of the old self. And then if you now turn to look only briefly at the third section that runs from verses 12 to 17, you'll see it's just the flip side of that second section. Whereas in the second section, Paul commanded the Colossians to put away and put off. In verses 12 to 17, it's the opposite. It's all about putting on. Put on then, the apostle commands, as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience thankful. Paul was aware that his readers were a work in progress. Paul knew that they and we, like them, would need to continue to put off the things of sin and put on the things of righteousness. Paul knew the Christian life isn't one of perfection overnight, but rather progression over a lifetime. And it was right there in verse 10 that he made that clear. You have put off the old self, Paul says in verse 9, and have put on the new self, which is being renewed. It's an ongoing renewal that Paul's describing here. It's a renewal in knowledge after the image of its creator, I cannot help but think about 2 Corinthians 3, verse 18 here. Paul says there, 2 Corinthians 3, verse 18, We all with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image. From one degree of glory to another. That's the Christian life beholding the glory of the Lord and being transformed into the same image. So now, brothers and sisters, what's right at the heart of that in Colossians 3? This entire text, is about the reality of the gospel in our lives. So what is the context in which all of this is happening? What is the direct application of all of it? Where are we supposed to see this gospel transformation in action, this Putting off of the old self and the putting on of the new self. What does it look like when we exhibit the love that binds everything together in perfect harmony? Well, it's in verse 11. It's right at the hinge between sections two and three of this passage. It is in this verse which I earlier called one of the most profound statements in all of the scriptures on the subject of race and social divisions. Listen to it. Colossians 3, verse 11. Here, there is not Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, free. But... Instead, Christ is all, and Christ is in all. Dear friends, where is it that the new creation work of God brought about by the cross of his Son and the sending of his Spirit is most clearly and powerfully seen, according to the Apostle? where our Dying and being raised with Christ and are putting off the old self and putting on the new self of the renewal that shows off the image of the creator, where is all of that especially to be on display? My answer based on Colossians 3 is it's in how we as God's people overcome divisions of race and of culture and of social status and how we demonstrate and advocate for those kingdom realities in the world as the gospel reshapes our priorities, and we live in light of them. From verses 5 to verse 17 of Colossians 3, the only verse that's not part of a command from the Apostle Paul is verse 11. Paul's not commanding them to overcome these divisions. Paul simply asserts that because of Christ in us, All of those divisions are gone. These are the people you love as you put on compassionate hearts and kindness and humility and meekness and patience and a willingness to forgive. Where such love is absent in the life of the church, we would rightly question the validity of that church itself. Just think for a moment about these categories in verse 11. We mentioned last week a bit about how Greek and Jew were divided by ethnicity, religion, and culture, and how the hostility in that division was immense. Paul says the gospel overcomes it. The references here in verse 11 to barbarians and Scythians, (laughs) Those are references to people that the Romans and the Greeks viewed as unrefined, uncultured, uncivilized. Originally, barbarian was a term that used to describe all foreigners, all non Greeks. The Greek word barbaros, from which barbarian derives, means literally a babbler the word itself being a derogatory description of the way Greeks heard the sound of foreign tongues, as in bar, 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 bar. Romans would later then use that term to refer to foreigners who lacked Greek and Roman traditions, who were considered cultural fools. Simply put, barbarians, are those from outside, those who don't share in your civilization's cultural traditions or structures of life. Scythians. Scythians were a group of ancient tribes of nomadic warriors whose influence uh, eventually over the centuries extended all over Central Asia, from China to the Northern Black Sea, to the Greeks, the Scythians of the Black Sea region were thought of as violent, uneducated, uncivilized, and completely inferior. Of them, the Scythians, Josephus wrote, Scythians, who delight in murdering people and are little better than wild beasts. The terms Paul employs here are literally the ethnic slurs of the ancient Greco-Roman world, you see. We have to feel something of just how shocking this sentence in verse 11 would have been. And the apostle says, in contrast to such societal discrimination and prejudice against other races and cultures, The gospel knows no such divisions. I am under obligation both to Greeks and to barbarians, both to the wise and to the foolish, Paul wrote in Romans 1, chapter 14, referring to this same division. Only it didn't end even with racial and cultural differences, did it? Paul includes here slave and free in verse 11. Within the Greco-Roman context, those terms describe the opposite poles in the economic strata of society. Slave and free represented the deepest class divisions possible in the Greco-Roman world. No, Paul says, the gospel creates one body, irrespective of social status too. Here there is not Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, free. But, verse 11 concludes, Christ is all and in all. Dear friends, let us ask ourselves, where is that true in the church today? And where is that not true? In Colossians 3, we find a specific admonition to unity where the barriers of race so clearly manifest themselves. Such unity will not be easily achieved, of course, but it matters deeply. It's here at the heart of the implications of the death and resurrection of our Lord Jesus Christ as those things are realities in our lives because it reflects the gospel. It demonstrates the reality of God's kingdom as we'll see even more clearly in the next two Sundays. We must take steps to bring it about. Our identity in the body of Christ is more essential than any racial, ethnic, national, familial, or professional identity. And it is within that body that the transformative power of the gospel is most clearly, or should most clearly, be on display. Christ is all, and in all, Paul says at the end of verse 11. Seems to me that will be the good word for us to end on this morning. To go away from this sermon thinking deeply on the fact that Christ is in all his people of every race and every culture and every social status, conforming us to his image, to new ways of thinking and feeling and doing and relating It is no longer I who live, Paul says in Galatians 2 verse 20, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me, gave himself for me. Or I think to put those those thoughts in the words that Paul now writes here in Colossians, with Christ in all, Christ is all. Christ has become everything for us. For you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. What power there is in the gospel. Power for all of life and for all the world. Have we experienced it? Has the world seen it? Having died with Christ, we have been raised with Christ. Having put off the old self, we have put on the new self. Because Christ is in us all, Christ has become our all. May God make us a people who live out the peace of Christ in one body, a people of whom it may be said that whatever we do, in word or deed we do, In the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen.